This is the 966, episode 26, Richard Mabruk. Thank you. Joining us today, a very, very special guest, Mr. David Rundell, author of the book Vision or Mirage, Saudi Arabia at the Crossroads. Look, if you want to understand Saudi Arabia, start with this book. We both think it's the best out there on the kingdom. So, David, thank you very much for joining us today. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for inviting me. David, it's uh, truly a, an honor uh, to have you with us today. We both feel like this, uh, the book you wrote, Vision and Mirage, uh, is the, the uh, source, par, you know, an uh, unparalleled source for understanding Saudi Arabia today and also in the past. So this is, we're looking forward to our conversation today. And I, I, one of the things, David, I wanted to, to, to jump into is you, a really distinctive thing about your career. You spent 15 years in Saudi Arabia working at the embassy from top to bottom. And you were also in the consulates in Jeddah and Dahran. You, you were in Riyadh, you were the chief of mission, charge d'affaires, deputy chief of mission, political counselor, economic counselor, commercial counselor, commercial attaché, everything. And it's important to note, as I understand it, ambassador's is this Ambassador's driver. Yeah. I was <laughs> ambassador's driver for a while too. Is that right? <laughs> Not really, just a little bit. <laughs> well, it I wouldn't surprise <laughs> me, but is this correct? Uh, this this is an unrivaled record of single country concentration for an American diplomat, not in only in Saudi Arabia, but in any country. Is that accurate? Yeah, that is accurate. Uh, I'm not sure it's an accolade, but it's accurate. Well, it, it, it what an extraordinary opportunity. And didn't, as a young officer, wasn't one of your tasks to go out and sort of travel around the country and speak with people? Yeah, the reason that it's a unique uh, set of uh, assignments is and probably will never be equaled is because I was also the commercial attache and the commercial counselor. And that really means you've got to actually leave the State Department and consciously go work for the Department of Commerce for several years. And I did, I worked for them for seven years before they made me the commercial counselor in Riyadh. So, um, that's on that's very unusual so to have been the econ counselor the political counselor and the commercial counselor is pretty unheard of so anyway that's why i think no one else will ever do it uh because they probably don't want to uh, in terms of uh what i did on my first tour which really whetted my appetite for saudi arabia was uh, that was very shortly after the shah of iran had fallen and we believed that we did not have an adequate information about what was happening inside uh, the actual countryside and that we'd focused too much on the capital. So they created a job, uh, someone to go out and find out what was happening in the countryside. I was the most junior political officer. I was not married and I was more than happy to spend two weeks out of every month traveling around Saudi Arabia in my Jeep. And that's what I did for two years. And to be honest, I, you know, there were many days I would wake up and think, wow, they're actually paying me to do this. You know, <laughs> this is like a vacation, you know, I'm really having a good time. I'm using my Arabic. I'm stopping and, you know, it was very interesting really, because everywhere I went, um, First person I went to see was the governor. I saw, I went to every single province in Saudi Arabia. I went to every city there was and pretty much every place there was a paved road and many places there weren't paved roads. 
And I slept in gas stations and sometimes in sand dunes and sometimes in palaces and uh, talked literally to everybody from, you know, governors to shepherds. Uh, and so I learned a great deal. Uh, and I learned I like Saudi Arabia. I found it interesting. And at the end, I came back and I wrote my report, uh, which said that I did not think there would be a revolution in Saudi Arabia in the next five years. I couldn't tell them what was going to happen in 20 years, but I certainly said, I don't think there's going to be one in five years. And uh, many people didn't, didn't like that. They all figured that the Shah had fallen and then the El Saud were next. And so there's been a long drumbeat of people who believe that uh, Saudi Arabia is unstable and is going to collapse. And they've been wrong repeatedly. They still publish books and they still write newspaper articles. In fact, I had a collection. It was kind of funny. I, uh, I still have it somewhere. They just, my collection of newspaper articles all the way back to the 1930s, predicting the collapse of the House of Saud. So I wish I had a dollar for all those guys who've been wrong. Uh, and, you know, the, the whole premise of my book really was to reverse the question uh, and to say, not when will the El Saud collapse, but how come they're still here? How come they are the last strategically important monarchy in the world? Um, you know, there's a photograph of the funeral of King Edward of Great Britain uh, in the early 1900s. And in the cortege behind his coffin are dozens of kings and emperors and sultans and uh, archdukes and counts and all of these people in plumed hats and bright coats with medals and sashes. And then at the very end of the parade, there's one guy in a black coat with a top hat. And that is President Roosevelt. And he's at the end of the parade because he is the only guy there who's not a king or a duke or a emperor. So you look at that picture and then you stick that next to the latest meeting of the G20 and there's only one king left. And a uh, hundred years later, the whole table has turned. And so uh, why is that? And I think the answer is answered in the book. Before we get started, that was fascinating. Before we get started, I just want to share our appreciation to our listeners and viewers on all podcast platforms, YouTube, <clears throat> excuse me, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcasts, you can find us there. Um, really cool, Richard, to see our viewership and listenership grow each week, which is Absolutely. just awesome, very motivating. Yeah. Um, so we appreciate you all being here with us today. Um, let's, <clears throat> Richard, let's get started. What's your one big thing this week? Excuse me. <clears throat> I like all my one big things, but I really like this one this week. So uh, Saudi Arabia is conducting its very own Wilson Olympics. Uh, growing up, every 4th of July, my parents would invite neighbors and friends to come over for hamburgers and hot dogs. And the much ballyhooed Wilson Olympics, which was really just a hodgepodge of games, some real, some made up. And for a kid, but also I think for the adults, um, it was a highlight of every summer and, and a source of bragging rights throughout the year. So. It's a really a fond memory, and it, 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 it's a great idea. But similar to the Wilson Olympics, 
the 22 Saudi games will take place from March 10th to 20th in Riyadh. Now, this is the first edition of this multi-sport competition overseen by the Saudi Arabian Olympic and Paralympic Committee, which is kind of cool. They're doing both of these together. Uh, more than 6,000 athletes are set to participate in 45 sports, which, this is the part I love, were selected on the basis of their popularity. So this is Wilson Olympics Redux. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I don't have copyrights on this, but I think there was something going on here. The chosen sports are, and, and bear with me, are archery, athletics, badminton, five-on-five and three-on-three basketball. Lucian, we may want to consider this. Uh, beach volleyball, billiards, bowling, boxing, camel racing, chess, road cycling, equestrian in the form of endurance jumping, electronic games, fencing, football, golf, gymnastics, handball, rowing, judo, jiu-jitsu, karate, kickboxing, Muay Thai boxing, shooting, sports climbing, skateboarding, squash, swimming, table tennis, taekwondo, tennis, triathlon, volleyball, water polo, weightlifting, wrestling, paddling, karting, sambo, aikido, wushu, and... Balut, which is a traditional card game, which I love. So, <laughs> again, again, this is by popular acclaim. These are the sports that are in the Saudi games. Uh, participating sports, uh, they're holding preliminary competition round on February 16th with locals, amateurs, and professional athletes from Saudi Arabia, all eligible to, com to compete. Another thing I love, so this is going off on March 10th. Anyone interested in participating has until February 13th to sign up. So, I mean, this is truly a game f games for the people. I mean, if you want to join in and sign up and compete, you can do it. Uh, prize money is set to reach up to 26000 uh, The Wilson Olympics, I think, you know, <laughs> well, maybe it was an extra slice the of watermelon. The purse was You know, and that watermelon was great in July. But uh, opening ceremony take place at the King Fahad International Stadium in Riyadh. I love this. This is truly participation and joy of sports and, and a, just a great story. That is a really cool story. David, uh, please feel free to weigh in. <laughs> no, I disagree. I mean, it's, a, it's, you know, another step in the right direction. Yeah. You know, in the book, uh, I tried to provide leading indicators as to where Saudi Arabia was going socially, economically, and politically. Uh, I don't claim that I have a crystal ball, so I can draw several possible scenarios and then put out indicators which would give you an idea as to which way things are going. Uh, I had a problem with that because every time I put one in, you know, the Saudis would uh, meet it. Yeah. And then it would be done. And I'd say, well, you know, I better uh, women driving. Well, tick that one off. You know, uh, women uh, lawyers, tick that one off. So um, I should have put this in. You know, I had I didn't think of this. I didn't think of their own uh, Wilson Olympics. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, I think it's a, and, you know, it's 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 interesting in that it is um, different enough from the real Olympics to get attention. It's not just, you know, a wannabe follow-on uh, to something that's already been done. It's a new and interesting idea. So yeah. it could get good for them. And I think it's different, too. Sorry to interrupt, Lucian. I think it's different, too, from some of the other marquee sports initiatives they've done, you know, in, in golf and soccer and that sort of thing. But anyway. Uh, that is that is exactly what I was going to say. I mean, it's you, Saudis are now seeing 
all winter Olympian. They're seeing, a, you know, one or two go to the summer Olympics. And there's a huge gulf between those Saudis and the Saudis that are on the global stage. I think that's something like this is really cool because it makes it um, I am loath to use a word, but it makes it democratic. It makes it accessible. <laughs> like if you want to compete in these these first Saudi games, you can as a Saudi. You just need to be a little bit popular among your friends. I, I just think that's really that's a really cool story. Count me in for the next Wilson Olympics, by the way. I don't Absolutely. know what my specialty will be, but I want to be there. I, especially if you're paying in watermelon. I mean, <laughs> it's, it's a watermelon is the coin of the realm. Yeah. If uh, and I, we may in include Balut. You know, first we have to learn how to play it, but that would be a good addition. <laughs> um, That's very popular in Saudi Arabia. Yeah, I'm it's sure. Widely, widely played there, so there, I'm sure there'll be plenty of contestants for that. <laughs> what, if I may ask, what is it? Is it like a? It's, it's like a card game, right? Yes. You know, yeah, I've never played it. I've never learned how to play it. it. It seems to be something like bridge, but I don't really know. But it's played regularly. A lot I, of people play it. I, I, my little understanding of it is it's akin to bridge. And I guess it was brought to the Hejaz by Indian immigrants during the Ottoman Empire and it became very popular. But yes, obviously, if it, it was voted into the Saudi games, it's clearly very popular. That's awesome. Um, Richard, if I may, I'll, I'll move on to my one big thing this week, um, and then we'll take advantage of David's really deep experience in Saudi Arabia. But I just wanted to share this report. It came out this week from the World Bank on the truly staggering annual costs of pollution in the Middle East. Air pollution alone costs the MENA region $141 billion a year. That's 2% of economic output. Some of the findings from the World Bank in this report, which was on our website, sustg.com, and We'll share it um, on our podcast website as well. Uh, air pollution levels in the Mena's largest cities are among the highest in the world. The average citizen in these cities is breathing in air that is 10 times more polluted than the WHO says is safe. It causes 270,000 deaths a year, and the average Mena resident is sick at least 60 days in his or her lifetime due to exposure to elevated air pollution levels. So wow. the report sort of discusses um, different types of pollution, their impact on the economy, and then also society. And I think one thing that's really interesting about it, and again, I've, I've got a lot of notes here, but I'm just, I just want to make this point. I think the global dialogue on climate change has started really evolving, and it's started about six months ago. If you uh, look at, online, there's a report um, actually from the Pew Research Center, so um, it's definitely there. Uh, a survey of attitudes of 17 countries found growing widespread concern about the personal impact of global climate change. And I think what we're seeing now from policymakers and stakeholders is a shift in how they're dealing with climate change, and they're presenting it more and more as an opportunity. And if you look at the Riyadh Green Initiative, which I think really kicked that off, was sort of the Saudis saying, hey, like, we now understand this is an opportunity, not just a bill that we're being presented um, regarding, you know, our emissions. So I think rhetoric is changing on climate change. And I think uh, the way that uh, policymakers, stakeholders are approaching the problem is saying, look, there's really economic opportunity here. What this report does is sort of highlight the costs of not doing anything on the annual economy. So uh, the World Bank report says, uh, well, it, it recommends um, tackling air pollution, marine plastic pollution, erosion, coastal erosion, um, and uh, emphasizes the four I's, inform stakeholders, provide incentives, strengthen institutions and investment in payment options. The last thing I'll mention about this, and, and uh, I would love to hear what you guys uh, have to think, have to say about this, but um, really interesting mangroves are getting a lot of attention. Richard Adam Siminski mentioned it to us, a former president of Capsark, um, about the use of mangroves along coastal seas. And I think the Saudis are doing that along the Red Sea. 
So yeah. just an interesting report. Check it out. It's 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 really cool. I thought that that figure was staggering, frankly. Can you help me understand the report, which I have not read? Um, does it state what the leading causes of this pollution are in any kind of ranked order? Did you see that, Richard? I didn't see the. I didn't see a lot on what these causes were. That's um, a good. It's a good question. Nor, I, nor I, did it break it. I'm sorry. Nor did it break it down by country, yeah. which I thought was interesting. I'm sorry to interrupt you. Well, Richard. that makes to be to be honest. I think that makes it a fairly useless report. Uh, to tell me something is MENA, I mean, what does that mean? That they have more pollution in Cairo than they do in uh, Abu Dhabi? I mean, you know, anything that is just MENA is kind of useless. It's the same way they used to do that. You know, specifically, they used to say, how much, um, which country owns treasury bonds? And they would say, there's a one number for the GCC, right. which they did on purpose to disguise it. Uh, now they've actually started saying which country holds what. But, you know, I, I think that something that is done just MENA is, is, is of questionable use. And the second thing I would say is, um, fine, there's so much pollution, but at least, but if I'm going to do something about it, tell me what the sources are. Mm -hmm. uh, is this mostly from motor transportation or is it mostly from electricity generation? Uh, so I need to know that. Any event, those are just my thoughts. Mm -hmm. Probably you know, not what the author wants to hear, but uh, that's what, what I would think. I think uh, 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 two thoughts. One, off of Lucian's, um, actually, David, let me start with you. That main distinction is important because as, as we're seeing, especially with things like the COVID uh, pandemic and, and, you know, in the region within itself, you really have to disaggregate it because increasingly it is becoming haves and have-nots. And Ab Absolutely. And it, it, so the MENA, the MENA region, you know, uh, which, it, it, as you say, is not instructive in terms of understanding. There's probably no resources. region in the world. There's probably no geographic region in the world where the disparity between, I don't know, uh, Cairo again and, and Abu Dhabi. I mean, that's a huge distinction. I mean, and I can't think of any two cities in Europe that are that uh, far apart, or even really in Asia or well, Africa. And, and just you. Oh, it's, it's, just, it, 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 it's, it's a damaging way to look at it, I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But, uh, you know, Lucian, I think Lucian. Sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. No, I was just going to say, I don't mean to be critical of. No. of I'm, not, I'm not being critical of Lucian. I think it's an interesting report <laughs> to look at. I, but I'm being critical of the authors of the report. The idea of looking at that number is interesting. I just think that they could have done a better job. Well, I think it speaks to one of the one of the elements of going in into discussion of an intelligent discussion of the global energy conversion. Because certainly, at times, the the pro alternative energy, renewable energy, clean energy, so it's presented as if you can just switch, uh, flip a switch, and and you can't. And uh, this the the residue of pollution in these lesser developed countries, emerging markets. I mean, that's a byproduct of not being able to address the sources. Of, uh, they don't have the funds or the means of the technology or the political willpower to address the sources of these pollution. And Principal Aziz bin Salman, had a, the Ministry of Energy in Saudi Arabia, had an interview with Time recently where he pointed this out. And he, he said, look, three billion people lack any meaningful sor energy source, any clean energy just for cooking. Um, these people use biomass, everything to burn, including cutting trees, just to get through the day. They expose themselves to all sorts of hazards, including sickness and even death, and of course generate enormous amounts of air pollution. 
So, uh, you know, understanding this is part and parcel, I think, to uh, the fact that this, you know, managing your air pollution and your emissions from many countries, it's impossible for to be at the top of the list because you, first you have to you know, feed your family. And it, it's a real challenge. Well, you need to look at um, how they're producing electricity in different cities. I mean, if you know, I had a long chat with uh, some people from uh, Tesla once about this, about, again, I'm an economist by training, so I look at data in perhaps a little more skeptical way than some people do. But I said, tell me about what is the CO2 produced per mile driven? I mean, I see in the subway or the tube in London, these signs saying, you know, zero emissions from this electric car. I said, okay, zero emissions from your electric car, but electricity is not a source of energy. Electricity is a means of transferring energy. Right. The energy came from somewhere. So, the, and this guy was very honest. He said, you know, it, you're right that depending on how the electricity is made, um, you could be actually producing more pollution driving a Tesla than you would driving a regular Chevrolet. And if, in fact, the electricity is produced by coal, that's almost certainly the case. Mm -hmm. So you'd have to look and see where the electricity, I don't know how they produce electricity in Cairo. Uh, so, it's, you know, it's a complicated, as you were saying, Richard, it's a complicated question and the answer is not as simple as a lot of people seem to think. No, and just the production of a of an electric vehicle is highly energy intensive, and you know just getting the the minerals and the you know lithium and things from the batteries is 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 uh, and often very emission intensive. So, I think that's one of the good things that coming out of the discussion. I, I feel like in terms of the global energy conversion and the, and the climate uh, climate change discussion, especially coming out of COP twenty six in Glasgow in November, end of November, um, it's becoming a little more well-rounded, uh, not fully well-rounded, but a little more well-rounded. Um, well, I think that Lucian made a good point, and the report makes a good point when it talks about the um, actual health um, impact that this has. Again, I don't know how they, where they got their numbers or how they aggregated them, but clearly a significant number of people are having health problems as a result of this, and that, that's a wake-up call. Uh, that's more about health than it is about, you know, climate change. Mm -hmm. And that's a whole, and that's a different issue. And we've been dealing with, you know, pollution as a health hazard, uh, which is a separate issue really than climate change. But no, but I think that the fact that they, that they pointed that out is a good thing. Yeah. yeah I've been to, if you've been to India, um, when they are all burning their crops, it's, if you, you have never seen anything like that. I yeah. couldn't believe it. You couldn't even, you couldn't see 20 feet ahead of you and you, and you couldn't breathe. I mean, you literally, and it, I mean, don't ever go to uh, India at the time of year in the, in the, when they're burning their uh, crops uh, because you will not have a pleasant experience. Hmm. Anyway, and that's, that just goes to what Richard was saying about how there's a lot of sources of this that come from primitive agriculture, people who don't have alternative. I mean, if, if they had a, another way to get rid of their crops, I guess, or their rubble, they would do it, their stubble. Yeah. Anyway, yeah, yeah and the, the solutions here are not, you know, turnkey solutions. And it's Riyadh is planting what, what what was the figure, Richard? Ten billion trees. It's yeah. a it's a staggering number of trees. Yeah, um, but that's really true. B, I'm with a billion. I'd like to know I where think, they're going to get a billion it's, trees. It's got to be a million. 
doesn't have to be a million. I've, I thought seen, I saw billion. A billion. I've seen billion myself, and I just can't. I just know where you're going to get a billion trees. I can't. Yeah, <laughs> but that's a that's a decade plus solution. Um, I, I think this is also going to serve as the impetus for some green financing. I mean, if you're if you're in the green financing space, you're sort of saying, well, look at the World Bank report on this. Look at the money that's being lost. Maybe let's use these instruments instead. So moving on here, Richard, if, if you're if you're good with this, let's get Absolutely. into the, the meat of this sandwich here. We'd like to cover a few topics and take advantage of David's extensive experiences and knowledge about Saudi Arabia. David, let's start with a subject you cover extensively in your book, Vision or Mirage, and that is the rise of the rise and reign, excuse me, of King Salman. We've talked about this a good bit on this podcast, but can you start by elaborating a little bit on the significant and consequential role King Salman has played since becoming king? Sure. Um I think it's widely recognized that uh, King Salman has conducted something of a revolution in the uh, social life in Saudi Arabia and also is trying to do that in the economic life of Saudi Arabia. But people often overlook the revolution that he brought in political matters. and maybe that's a good thing. Maybe he wanted people not to focus on that. But the reality is that uh, he totally changed the political structure of Saudi Arabia. And I would argue in the long run made it more stable. Um, the fact is that the system of succession has been, and the fact that Saudi Arabia had a stable uh, and peaceful mechanism for succession was one of the factors that led to stability and prosperity uh, in Saudi Arabia. That model, as you well know, was predicated on transferring power from one son of Ibn Saud to the next. And that system seemed to work quite well. Uh, but the problem was that they were running out of sons. They, you know, had been going on for 60 years. Uh, I think King Abdullah's or King Ibn Saud's King Abdulaziz's uh, first son was born in 1902 or something like that. And his last one was born in 1952. So he was a busy fellow for a long period of time. And he had a lot of sons um, and daughters. And um, so we're running out of sons. Uh, we now have to move to grandsons. They are, by definition, a much less cohesive group. Uh, there are probably 500 of them, as opposed to, I don't know, 34 sons that were still alive when Ibn Saud died, something like that. And um, many of those grandsons felt that they were qualified. And so there was a real potential for a Game of Thrones. And I think also, to be fair, that uh, there were a lot of people who thought they should have the job who probably weren't really up to it. Uh, so King Salman uh, engineered quite specifically, quite deliberately, the rise to power of someone he thought would be a good king. And uh, as Ali Shihabi points out, that was an unusual decision in that he abandoned the concept of age. Uh, and that had been one of the key characteristics of the royal family politics is that deference was given to age. Not totally, not that, that was not the only factor, but it was a major factor. And he skipped many older cousins and even some of his older uh, brothers of uh, Mohammed bin Salman 
because he saw in him what he thought he needed to uh, transition into the to the next generation. So that was the, the I think the first political change that he engineered. Uh, and the second that he engineered politically was, if you will, a downsizing, whatever word you want to call it, of the um, of the royal family, in the sense that there had been there were thousands, tens of thousands of these uh, princes, all of whom felt that they had some sort of legal prerogative, financial prerogative claim on the treasury. Uh, and he disabused them of that. And, and I think, again, both of these things were necessary. The first was necessary because you, want, you have to have one guy who's going to be a king and you don't want a civil war. The second was necessary because the population was not permanently going to endure thousands of princes not paying their electric bill, uh, especially when they come and tell you, by the way, your electric bill is going to double this week. So you had to do something to uh, make it appear that, um, that there was not a, a class. It's, it's sort of like in Britain, you know. I mean, most people in Britain will be, they're quite happy to have the queen have a, you know, a, a, a very wealthy lifestyle and a very uh, privileged position. But they're not going to let, um, you know, hundreds of members of the royal family, they're not going to pay for them all to live in palaces. Uh, so you had to downsize or shrink the number of people who were getting this prerogative. They did that. Uh, and they stabilized, as I say, the succession. And the third thing that he did politically was that he made it clear that corruption was not going to be um, acceptable. I think King Salman had always uh, had a dim view of corruption to the extent that he was able to limit it in Riyadh, where he was in charge. He did. Uh, but he was not able to do that throughout the country. And he began to make it clear that uh, he changed the rules. And, uh, and that um, was unfair, perhaps you could argue, to some people who had played by an old set of rules which they thought was acceptable, and then all of a sudden woke up one morning and found out the rules had changed. Uh, but um, again, that was something I think that needed to be done, and, and he did it. So I would say those are the three political things that he did, uh, which are really all, each one of them, quite dramatic and worthwhile in itself. David, this, this man, King Salman, is endlessly fascinating to me. And uh, I don't think people really fully understand. I, I think people, if they read your book or if they're really deeply into it, what a pivotal role he's played. In, from the moment he, he became king in January 2015 to when Mohammed bin Salman was named crown prince in June 2017, that's 30 months. And he simply transformed the whole, um, the, the whole proposition. Uh, in so many funda way, fundamental ways, you that you just outlined, I just—he's such a dichotomy. I mean, this is a this is a man who, you know, can trace his royal DNA back for centuries. You know, has spent he, when he arrives in as as king, he is he is the ultimate insider, the ultimate benefactor of a system, the the bluest of bloods, and yet, and I want to quote something. So that's one side of it. That's his sort of pedigree. That's his lineage. That's his DNA. And then you describe him, um, I'll quote from your book, he had been governor of Riyadh province for 48 years, intelligent, pragmatic, hardworking, well-organized, and disciplined. He was also strict, demanding, and humorless. 
he made firm decisions would become no, known locally as the king of decisiveness. Salman's long-standing emphasis on effective administration, opposition to corruption, and unforgiving disciplinary style were all well known when he became king. These traits have characterized his reign ever since. So I think that's that's accurate. Yeah. Well, you know, if you were to read I this, wrote it, I think it's accurate. Yeah. Well, I know, and I, I, I certainly and believe it. And, and I and I and I, you know, could back it up with many examples. I don't know who writes this stuff, but I'm just pulling it out. You know, but no, this is this is. I I think this is fascinating, and 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 it appears to be spot on. But so, should we have not been surprised? That's a good question. Um, well, I mean, I wrote that, and I knew all of that, and I was still surprised at the effectiveness with which he did it. So. You can take that as an answer. I mean, I was surprised. I didn't. Um, it took me a while to, you know, to figure out just how bold he was going to be. Uh, you know, what he did was really implement something of a revolution, which really, in Saudi terms, was a revolution. Uh, so, no, I didn't expect him to be quite the revolutionary that he turned out to be. I expected him to. to his personality was as I described. And I think that his two principal motivations, uh, and this is true of, I think, of all the senior princes, uh, they, have a bi they have a binary goal. Um, and they see the two as very interconnected. One is to preserve the monarchy. And two is to do a good job of providing for security and prosperity for the Saudi people. And they believe quite, and I think actually quite rightly, that preserving the monarchy does in fact uh, enhance the prosperity and security of the Saudi people. So but it's not a purely selfish thing that they, when they say we need to preserve the monarchy, if you look around and see what happens to most Arab countries when the monarchy collapses, uh, it's not a very pretty picture. So I think they're right about that. So it's uh, they're helping themselves, but also helping the country at the same time. And I think that that was his clear motivation. And he was pretty radical about how he went about doing it. Um, so, yeah, I was a little surprised. I was a little, um, surprised at how, I was a little surprised at the speed at which he did it. Yeah. I don't know how one couldn't be. Uh, it, just uh, stunning, really. You know, throughout history, uh, there's always the you know endless question about does the moment make the man or does the man make the moment? And uh, I've said on this show a number of times that November 2014 OPEC meeting, when Saudi Arabia declined to uh, decrease production as as um, oil prices were declining rapidly as a result of uh, U.S. shale oil production skyrocketing, and sort of looking into the abyss going forward, going, okay, we are no longer, uh, this revenue model is not going to work. And we have to find some other way to, to do with the, the two things you just noted, preserve the monarchy and provide for the people. And so that's November 2014. King Salman becomes king in 2015. And it's fascinating to me that he already had this mindset. He already had this approach, this sense, this deep, deep, deep understanding of what didn't work and what might work in the in the in the traditional ruling system, along with this really financial, existential imperative to do something different if you want to survive. 
And it, it, it just feels like at that juncture, in you know, the end of 2014, after three years of oil prices over $100, it was going to end up 20, and by the, by the middle of 2015, it was at $29. Uh, 2014, 2015, and 2016, terrible revenue years. You know, they, they simply didn't have the money to take care of their people. They had to do something different. It just seems that juncture was, was um, you know, extremely. Well, I think historic. that's right. I mean, I think that, you know, um, The fact that the country was bleeding reserves certainly gave impetus to some of the changes, uh, and it gave him an argument that he could use when he had to impose those yeah. prices on people. You know, peop the Saudi people are astute. They know very well that their lifestyle depends on the price or. Uh, People say the price is not really the price, it's the revenues, you know, and revenue is a value which comes from both price and quantity, but people like to use price. So um any event, they're not ignorant of that of that fact. And so they could see this, that they needed to, that things needed to change. And so it allowed him to make some of the changes which in the long term he recognized needed to be made. By the way, my in terms of King Salman, you know, uh, the man or the moment, I, I think the man met the moment. Yes, he uh, did. I think, you know, at that time ought to make him man of the year in some ways. I mean, because he really did, you know. And as he grows older and his son becomes more experienced, it's inevitable that his son will assume more authority. But for sure, in 2015, when Mohammed bin Salman was the newly appointed defense minister, uh, he was not running the country. Uh, you know, this is something that always troubles me a little bit when people blame Mohammed bin Salman for the war in Yemen, which I, f I find almost laughable when people say that because the king was the king. He, there was a crown prince. There was a deputy crown prince. There was Saud al-Faisal, ill but still alive at the foreign ministry. The idea that Mohammed bin Salman just walked in and said that we're going to war and I don't care what anybody else says. I mean, that's just this crazy. And plus, they were already thinking about it under the days of King Abdullah. Mm -hmm. So there were so the, the you know, I, I feel that to some extent uh, MBS gets uh, unfairly abused in the media for that, at least. On the on the Yemen issue. Yeah, on the on the Yemen issue. I mean, you know, um, I think on a number of things about the Yemen issue, I mean, first of all, um, we were not allowed, we were not willing to let the Soviets put missiles in Cuba. So why should the Saudis be willing to let the Iranians put missiles in Yemen? Uh, they, you know, the Yemen is the soft underbelly of Saudi Arabia. The Egyptians under Nasser tried to destabilize Saudi Arabia through Yemen, and now the Iranians are doing the same. Uh, which isn't to say that there aren't um, internal issues that are purely Yemeni. That's certainly true. But I think if there were purely Yemeni involvement, if, if there were no Iranian involvement, the Saudi attitude toward what's going on in Yemen would be very different. Mm -hmm. And I also find it interesting that nobody seems terribly worried about the uh, human catastrophe in Syria. We hear almost daily about the disaster in Yemen. But uh, I think if you look at the number of people, there's equally each, probably more people have suffered in the civil war in Syria. David, could you briefly characterize each stakeholder group that you discuss in your book and um, 
sort of talk. Your book was published in September 2020, um, and a lot has happened in Saudi Arabia since then. Could you maybe update, uh, char- briefly characterize each stakeholder group, and then maybe, I guess, update sure. um, sort of the the five stakeholders since the day the date of your publishing? Yeah, I don't think that anything really dramatic has changed in what I said. There have been more examples of trends that were already happening in 2020, the end of the basically, let's say January 2021. So in the last year, year and a half um, now. Um, David, can I interrupt oh, just, like, for, just, just for a second? Sorry, like, just, just for our listeners and viewers, the five stakeholders that, that David uh, assessed and analyzed were the tribes, the clerics, the merchants, the technocrats, and the royal family. Mm-hmm. The tribes are probably the least affected. Uh, and as I said in the book, the reason the tribes have been a key part of stability in Saudi Arabia, uh, they are becoming less powerful. That's not so much because of anything that the government did or that um, Vision 2030 changed, but it is a result simply of a society that's modernizing and uh, tribal structures become less important, certainly in in rural areas, they remain important, but in urban areas where there's people from many different tribes and groups, it's it's become less important. I think it would become more important again if security ever became a problem. I think then people would go back to their tribes, but uh, at the moment, that's not the case. So the tribes um, have not been affected that much, except what their natural erosion of what's happening as a society modernizes. Um, the clerics, uh, certainly they have been um, impacted by the change. Uh, their status and power uh, has and influence has been openly reduced. The religious police have had their fangs uh, pulled, if that's a word we want to use. Um, and their ability to dictate uh, social mores has largely evaporated. Uh, now they have conti- the senior clergy have continued to be consulted, and they have continued to endorse most of these changes. And so they have remained uh, well funded. Uh, they have not been challenged uh, in terms of the ra- the perks, if you will, that that they get. Uh, and so they remain loyal. Uh, the senior clerics and most of the clerics, I think, who in one way or another are civil servants, uh, remain loyal to the regime. I think the question is, if the country began to suffer economically, seriously, and there became uh, voices of dissent, there, they would be expressed in Islamic terms and religious terms. The Islam religion is the, is, the, is the mechanism, the political mechanism for dissent in most Arab countries today. And so then you would see what you have seen in the past occasionally, um, a division within the religious establishment and that there would be people who were more radical and people who were less radical. And there are people who are more radical today, uh, but most of them are in jail. So... Um, and I think that was deliberate, you know, I mean, they, they have put people who oppose change vociferously and vocally uh, in jail, 
who, and this is people who are extremists uh, on both the left and right. I think it must make for an interesting um, prison lunch table to see some of these uh, radical uh, liberals talking to the radical Salafis or whatever you want to call them, Sururis. So um, I think that the religious people have seen their influence reduced, but uh, they are not going to rock the boat because at the end of the day, they are wedded to the regime. Um, That's the senior clerics. Uh, and they still have influence. Don't, you know, it's not that they have been totally, I wouldn't, I wouldn't want people to have the impression that they've been totally swept aside. They still have considerable influence in courts and in schools. Uh, and they don't want to lose that. So that's the, uh, the next group is the merchants. What the merchants want most is stability. Uh, you can't, you know, they say capitalism is a coward or cash is a coward. Um, yeah, that's right. So what they want ultimately is a stable government. And I think that they see King Salman and his son having taken steps to ensure stability. So at the end of the day, they're happy about that. They're not happy about the change in their business model. Uh, and what do I mean by that? Well, they've some of the things that they have counted on as subsidies have gone away. They have had to start paying taxes, which they didn't used to have to pay. They've been encouraged to hire Saudis who are more expensive and sometimes less efficient than the docile foreign workers that they were able to employ for a long time. So in many ways, their business model has changed uh, to their detriment. And it's probably not as easy to get a government contract as it once was. But on the other hand, um, many average businessmen that I have spoken with um, are happy about the fact that there's less corruption. Uh, That's a good thing. If you're not the guy who's connected and paying the bribes and getting all the contracts, and all of a sudden there's a fair bid and you don't have to pay any, co- any bribes and you have a chance at getting a contract which you didn't even bother trying for in the past, that's a good thing. And so I think that in general, most of the business, the, the, look, the businessmen are never happy when oil prices are down. So during the COVID time, the economy slowed down and that was, very, that was a problem for business. And that was a problem for small businesses everywhere in the world. So to that extent, I think that many businesses in Saudi Arabia have suffered uh, and have felt the pain and have gone out of business. Uh, But I think that realistically, they would have to accept that that is as much a result of COVID in the last two years as it was of the king and his economic policies. And I think we're seeing now recovery from that, which we should see for the next uh, couple of years. And right now, you know, if you know, I said in the book, um, if oil goes to $20 a barrel and stays there, Vision 2030 is not going to work. And people are going to say that all the consultants wasted our money. If Vision, if uh, oil prices get to 100 and stay there, Vision 2030 is going to look like a, you know, brilliant plan. So oil price still matters uh, to the economy. And uh that is the case for the businessmen. I would think that in the next year or so, they're going to be happier than they've been in the last two years. 
technocrats. Um, well, uh, most people in Saudi Arabia are technocrats in one way or another, a civil servant of some degree. And they have seen their life change in a number of ways. Um, for one, you can't be sure that you're going to get a job in the government anymore. So if you were a Saudi who had always counted on getting a job um, in the government, not doing too much work and getting a reasonable salary, uh, that's not good. You're not happy about that. Uh, if you are a Saudi in government employee, um, you have seen some of your benefits cut. You have... Uh, I don't think they've gotten a raise to keep up with the growing inflation this year. Um, and they're being asked to do more work. And they're now you can be fired if you don't do a good job. So on one hand, those are negative things. Uh, but then there are positive things, too. And, you know, that Lyndon Johnson used to say he wanted a one-armed economist because they always told him on one hand and then on the other hand, right? So I'm guilty of that today. But it's true that um, to the extent that, yes, some Saudi bureaucrats are unhappy because you can now get fired and you now have to actually show up on time and do some work. And this varies from ministry to ministry. But in general, that's a trend. Um, on the other hand, you talk to some Saudi, let's take a dentist. This is a real example, a dentist who, uh, who works in a government hospital. Well, before all the dentists got paid the same, whether you saw five patients or you saw 15 in one day, all dentists got paid the same. Now they pay you a little bit extra for seeing more patients. So the ones that work hard, they're happy. The ones who want to drink tea all day, they're not happy. So I would argue that, uh, like, as, as, as I said, in the business community, some are happy because they, um, they got stability. Others see their business model being eroded. Um, so there are, and, and to be fair, probably some people have both opinions at the same time. Um, so, and then the, to take a look at the, um, the royal family, what well, we talked about them already to a considerable extent, but I think again, um, their perks have been substantially reduced, but they are still princes in a monarchy. And that's better than being in exile uh, in Monaco. So, um, you know, the, uh, the monarchy has been preserved, and I think most of them recognize that and are happy about that. Uh, and, I, and I think that my own take on this is that any opposition uh, that, that was in the royal family to uh, the succession of the crown prince has uh, largely, if not completely, evaporated. So I don't. So I don't real. I don't think there's going to be a succession war or problem now because people, partly because they they have um, demonstrated that they're going to be able to preserve the monarchy, but also because um, the monarchy has reached out to pretty much all branches of the family and given them a stake in the system again. Uh, so they haven't ignored these people. Uh, 
You know, I can I can tell you, I remembered very clearly. You you know, you asked me if I was surprised. Um, I remember very clearly where I was when I, the penny dropped and I realized that they were going to um, sack Mohammed bin Nayef. And because that, that was not obvious. Um, that was not obvious for a while. And I and I read the newspaper. I was sitting in the uh, Four Seasons having lunch and uh, I saw a list of all the new deputy governors. Now, there was like 15 of them or something like that. And I thought I looked at that and I read that and I thought, wow, that's it. He's he's rounding up votes. And that's exactly what they did. And they lined up and everybody got something. And uh, all the people that were going to have a vote at this uh, informal committee, which was supposed to be formal, but really didn't meet formally, this uh, Bayer committee, uh, you know, everybody, every branch of that family got something. They either were a governor or a deputy governor, or an ambassador to some important place. So he took care of the people. He took care of the princes. Uh, and he's even brought in princes from, you know, disparate, um, not disparate, but uh, distant branches of the family. Uh, so I don't see them as uh, rocking the boat. So I guess what I'm saying is that all of these groups have been influenced in some negative way by the changes. But in each case, the overwhelming um, balance of their interests is still very much to stick with the regime, especially if you look at what the alternatives might be. Um, so many questions coming in. I'm going to try and limit it to two. Um, the first one, you referenced earlier that you thought the, the, the net result, the result of, of, of King Salman's steps and the measures he's taken since January 2015 has resulted in a kingdom that is more stable. Why do you think that? Is it more stable today or is it less stable today? Actually, you know, I think there was a period when it was might have been less stable. Um, because things are changing very fast and very dramatically. And when any, and anything that's changing fast and rapidly uh, is uh, by definition almost less stable than something as static. So, but I also think that uh, at some point in time, had they not made these changes, uh, it would have become unstable. So they, I don't know if you've ever seen a book by Ian Bremmer called The J-Curve. Uh, it's a good book and it's an interesting concept. Uh, about the openness in a society. And what he would argue is that um, as a society becomes more open, it uh, becomes less stable. And then because of its openness uh, over time, it goes, it goes down and then it goes up and you make the J and uh, it becomes more stable. I think that the, something like that is what's gonna happen in Saudi Arabia in terms of uh, stability, uh, that they probably went through a period where it was less stable. Uh, but now that it's it's going to become more stable in the long run, I don't think it was. I don't think it was ever unstable in the sense that there was going to be a coup or a revolution. I don't think it ever reached that point. But I think that there was. I mean, myself. I mean, nobody really knew who's going to be. And today, nobody knows who's going to be who. Would be. What would happen if? Um, let's just say, what would happen if something happened to Mohammed bin Salman? Who would be the next king? I don't know. Uh, and um, that's, a, that's a destabilizing thing because you don't know who the next guy would be. Always in the past, we've always known 
pretty much who the first and second and third person would be. There's no third person today, so that's a little bit destabilizing. I, fascinating, because I, I agree 100%, because I think, if, again, if you're looking out there in January 2015, if, if you continue business as usual, it, instability will occur because the, you can't you can't address the needs of the people based on the on the model as it as it had been. I also think I, I think it's fascinating because there's a little bit of a mini J curve that's in, in, uh, occurred since 2015. Because if you look at I call it the confidence level, and you know there were some bad years. I mean MBS was made uh, crown prince in 2017. 2017 was not a good year. You had the, the Qatar diplomatic crisis. You had the Ritz Carlton detention. You had Saad Hariri was detained. 2018 they introduced the VAT. Be controversial. You know that's a brand new thing. Uh, of course October 2018 Jamal Khashoggi was killed. Uh, a whole a whole nother set of problems. March 2020 COVID pandemic. Uh, right in the middle of that you have right in the beginning of that you have the price war with Russia, and then in July 2020, at the heart of the you know at the early start of the pandemic, they increased VAT 15 percent. So, so there's all these crises that are occurring, really at the early the inception of the MBS era uh, as crown prince. Uh, but you can see as we're coming out, I mean, you know, fourth quarter is 6.8% growth, GDP growth. There's a, there's a, a great deal of, uh, obviously, oil prices have, have, are at, you know, levels they weren't, haven't been since 2014. Uh, there's a great deal of confidence, I think, and in, in, I, when, I, when I watch this government uh, manage its finances, and and insist that it will stick to these budgets and this is what we're going to be doing this is where we're going to be spending money and 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 offering a, a sense of predictability to the business class but also in general sticking with a plan obviously the revenues are very helpful i just see their confidence no i think that's all um that all speaks well for the king's decision as to who he wanted his successor to be um there aren't, you know, Tom Friedman said it in one of his articles that, you know, I don't, can't quote it exactly, but he basically said, if you think that there are, you know, a dozen princes in Riyadh who are as aggressive and uh, I think he used the word cunning and uh, determined and ambitious uh, as Mohammed bin Salman, you're wrong. Uh, there aren't many people like him. There aren't many people like him in the world, I don't think. And, you know, he is the kind of guy who's getting things done when they need to get done. And he's breaking consensuses, but he's trying to create new consensuses. But you mentioned the question of VAT. That's a very good example. Um, there were a lot, there were a variety of consultants working on that project, uh, some from private sector and some from international organizations. And they were saying that this putting VAT in an economy this large is going to take so many months. And Mohammed bin Salman was very adamant. He said, no, this is the date we're going to get it done. And we're going to get it done. And you figure out how to get it done. And they did figure out how to get it done. And they came up with some fairly creative uh, ways to, to get people to comply. And they made some excuses for or some, what do you call it, exceptions for some people who couldn't. But by and large, they got the thing done on time. Uh, that was the kind of drive that uh, you needed. And that this, as you say, the Salman uh, MBS team has provided. Which the is a very positive thing. 
Yeah. yeah. Uh, second question. Sorry to, to jump in here, Lucian. Um, you know, the, the relationship with the clerics has, has not only been changed internally, but the, the message going abroad is significantly moderated. Uh, and, and Saudi Arabia is uh, often through the World Muslim League, but other, other platforms is trying to refashion what it thinks is, is, is appropriate and best for Islam. Uh, globally, and a, a much more, more moderate approach. Uh, have you seen that? And I'm, I'm sure you've seen it, but any, any thoughts on that? Yeah, I think for the rest of the world, that's one of the most important things that needs to be recognized, that needs to be celebrated, and needs to be appreciated. Um, and I think we cut off our nose to spite our face to continue to think of the Saudis as a pariah state, uh, which some people have said. I think that's a big mistake. Um, right now, we should embrace uh, their willingness to change. Uh, if you look at the social changes that are happening in Saudi Arabia with relationship to the role of women, I mean, we could talk about that for a very long time, but the end of uh, the guardianship rules, the end of gender segregation in, in the workplace, the opportunities that are now aggressively being promoted for women. All this is happening uh, in a country where we don't spend any money on foreign aid and we haven't had any Americans killed there fighting in a long time. And you look at this compared to Afghanistan, where how much money do we spend and how many people got killed? And now it's going exactly backwards. Uh, so we should be embracing uh, Mohammed bin Salman for what he's achieving. Uh, that doesn't mean that you, I know people are going to say, oh, what, look at Yemen and look at Jamal Khashoggi. I don't want to ignore those things, but I think they have to be put into a balance. And uh, as you pointed out, the fact that they are now actively promoting, well, number one, they've stopped sending money to certain institutions that, that were perhaps you would call them intolerant. I think that's uh, probably the best word to use. Uh, and they've started promoting a more tolerant um, view of Islam. And the fact that uh, the head of the Muslim World League, you know, went to the commemoration ceremony at Auschwitz mm -hmm. uh, is pretty indicative of, uh, of, a, of a radical change in the way that they look at the world. And I think and you the way they want the world to look at them. I think you're referencing it, but not only are they not supporting uh, intolerant, they're, they're really clamped down in the ability of private citizens and the private sector to support or to move any money to these groups. Uh, yeah, I think, you know, look, a lot of that was, I think, and I, I've dealt a lot with that uh, in my time as economic counselor. There were... I'm sure there were some people that knew that their money was going to be going to some nefarious purpose. But I saw a lot of people who thought they were giving money to United Way or the Red Cross or the Red Crescent exactly. or some, some yeah. good. They, some guy would come. I saw this with my own eyes. Some guy would come and say, oh, give me money. I'm going to go build a mosque or I'm going to go build an orphanage. And they would say, OK, and they'd write him a check. But whoever knew what that guy did with the money right. or what he did with, you know, 10 cents on a dollar. So, so it was a very um, difficult and uncontrolled. Um, I would imagine if you looked at charities in the United States in 1900, they were probably not very well regulated either. Uh, that's changed. 
That's, and that has changed dramatically. So now charities are, especially charities that are sending money overseas, are very tightly controlled. Right. Does that mean, does that, mean that if you want to send money to some bad guys, that you cannot do it? No, it doesn't, because that's something that people you should understand, is that there are many wealthy Saudis who have bank accounts in London or Paris. How can the Saudi government um, stop them from doing something with their bank account in London? Not really. Right. Not any more than the U.S. government can stop me from doing stuff with my bank account in London, although they actually have a form I have to fill out to tell well, them about it. They but, do. Uh, it's, yeah, much, <laughs> and a lot of people are upset about that. And, and, but, a lot of, and, and well, it's, it's incredibly intrusive. Uh, yeah. You know, and, and foreign uh, countries should feel the same way, too, and foreign and, banks. And the other, thing, the other thing is that, you know, there's still a lot of, um, it's getting less, but there's still a lot of cash transactions in Saudi Arabia. And there is something which most of the people listening to this ought understand, which is the Hawala system, mm -hmm. uh, which is almost impossible to track that. So if you want to get money to terrorists, it's kind of like, do you want to smuggle drugs into the United States? Well, there's plenty of people trying to stop you, but you have a chance of getting through even if, if you try. And I think that's still the case with people trying to get money to terrorists. I, I think you're right. It's, it's massively reduced, and the whole message, the whole mechanism has changed in Saudi Arabia. And I agree, it's an overlooked, uh, it's an overlooked good uh, that benefits us all, that Saudi Arabia has changed its stance on this. We could, and I hate to be the, the <clears throat> timekeeper here, but if, if, if you guys are ready, we, we could move on to our final segment. Richard, unless sure. you have one follow-up question. No, before we do that, I, I have to get David to promise to come back and be with yes, us at some please. point. Because <laughs> we, we, we haven't gotten anywhere near the the, the Well, I think if I come, I have to promise to talk more um, succinctly. No, no, it's not you. But yes, let's move on to Yellow for sure. Let's move on to Yellow, yes. So our, our final segment here. And Richard, actually, would you like to just get us kicked off? I um, will. Uh, let me find out uh, where we are here. Uh, Yella, number mm -hmm. one. Yella, Saudi in a minute. Unfortunately, it's not a minute, but it's we're, we're nothing better. we do is short winded. That's okay. It's a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> one, authorities in Saudi Arabia released the new logo for the recently established founding day, a national holiday to be celebrated annually on February 22nd, commemorating the kingdom's founding in 1727 by Imam Muhammad bin Saud. The phrase Foundation Day 1727 AD is written below the logo, which is made up of five symbols the flag, dates, the mudjlis, the Arabian horse, and the market. The logo is really, really cool. It's sort of, it looks like a vintage stamp, right, it Richard? It's like I, a. I love it. It's I love cool. It. Yeah. Um, David, any thoughts? Uh, my thoughts? No, I haven't really given that much thought. Um, <laughs> I, I, I honestly haven't. I mean, I think it's an interesting uh, concept in a number of ways in that, um, you know, that the idea of National Day was frowned upon for a long time, that it was considered to be a non-Islamic holiday and that you weren't supposed to have it. Uh, that is, again, a, a, a change in, the, in attitude towards uh, religious dictates. Uh, now, they, you know, it was a few years ago they decided to celebrate National Day, which is um, the unification, if you will, of different parts of Saudi Arabia. And now they're actually, and I always wondered why they didn't have something on the, to celebrate the founding of the, of the whole uh, 
operation, if you will, the whole dynasty. So now they're doing that. I think, you know, that's it's, I don't have a particular view as to whether it's good or bad. Um, I know I hadn't thought about that. I think it's probably a good thing. Gives people more, gives people more reason to feel proud of being a Saudi. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I, first of all, on the, on the logo, you know, you, so often, you know, uh, graphic design firms or public relations firms, you know, are, get paid outrageous amounts of money for not much. But whoever did this, I think, it did a good job because it, it it's it's very striking and and uh, an interesting way to portray it. Anybody who listens to the podcast I, last week, anyway, I, I sort of. Abandoned on founding day. I find it endlessly fascinating. And I was talking about the distinction between a country and a nation. And between the National Day, which is established 2005, and now the founding day, you know, you know, uh, the, one of the primary differences is, you know, a nation has a founding myth or a narrative. And it's just really interesting with Saudi Arabia as it goes about formalizing this founding myth. Um, uh, so I, I think this founding day uh, is really an interesting, interesting step. February 22nd. I think, you know, the more, if I just, if I add something to it, I think that what it does, it enhances the legitimacy of the monarchy by demonstrating and reminding people. Uh, in, the, in the book, you know, I talked about different reasons for Saudi Arabia to be stable. One was a balancing of the stakeholders, which we talked about. Another was a smooth succession, which we talked about. And a Another one was the historic legitimacy that the family has for having created the place. And I mentioned in the book that that was, to some extent, a waning um, asset because people were forgetting about that. And I think this is a very, actually, now that I think about it, I think it's a bright idea because it's going to remind people that this family has been supervising, ruling, whatever you want to call it, uh, governing uh that part of arabia for you know since before there was an american republic uh so i think that's a, actually a good idea i think actually more i think about it it was a it was a clever idea and david's book is vision or mirage saudi arabia at the crossroads for those of you who are watching this in segments on youtube just want to make sure that um you guys know that let's move on to the second yellow topic today richard um organizers for the upcoming world defense show in riyadh said they have sold out all of its pavilions as the kingdom gears up to host its first major defense and security event of its kind in saudi arabia on march 5th as a precursor to the inaugural world defense show the first ever Riyadh Defense Forum will be conducted by the International Institute for St Strategic Studies. The World Defense Show will kick off the first day with a, quote, spectacular opening ceremony featuring live demonstrations of interoperable defense capabilities across all key domains. I bet that is something to behold. Um, just just very interesting. That's coming up on March 5th. And then the, I guess the, the actual exhibition is from the 6th to the 9th. So uh, and. It looks like 450 firms from 37 countries will be there. Ah, of course they want to be there. And this is all put together by the General Authority for Military Industries, GAMI. This has been in the works for like two years at least. They've been um, gearing up for this. So I think this is going to be quite the spectacle. Yeah, and this is a dedicated space. They built, I guess this is all purpose built, wherever this, where the exhibit is going to be shown. Um, yeah, wow. Interesting. Number three, uh, U.S. Central Command Head General Kenneth F. McKenzie said there is a rare opportunity to integrate air missile defense in the Gulf region, according to a report from AirForceMag.com. McKenzie noted that Iran, 
quote, remains the central threat around which U.S. Central Command is organized, unquote. McKenzie conceded that the goal of integrated air and missile defense for the GC states has foundered to date. I, I thought this was interesting uh, in the sense that it was sort of based on that the U.S. would like to see this happen. It's also interesting in the context of general GCC concern about where the U.S. is headed in terms of its commitment to the region, uh, security commitments, defense. But he did note what he said. He said two things that I thought were interesting. Again, this is from a U.S. perspective. He said, you know, this, is, this discussion is possible for a number of reasons. One is it's sort of generally the regional reasons concerned about Iran, especially its missile and nuclear intent uh, capabilities, rather. Um, and that with Qatar back in the fold, you know, it couldn't be done without Qatar because of uh, their key, key situation geographically. And also, of course, they have significant uh, defense assets in Al-Udaid and other things. But he also mentioned that also because Israel is now in the, in the Central Command, it was recently moved from the European Command to the Central Command. So I guess in his mind, he's saying, all right, we have more assets now to, if we wanted to get some sort of GCC integrated uh, defense mechanism, you know, we have more assets to bring into bear. But I, I just thought it was interesting. Um, number four, Richard, the Saudi Arabia's public investment fund, the PIF, which we never talk about ever on this show, <laughs> has been assigned debut, uh, uh, debut credit ratings by Fitch and Moody's receiving an A and A1 rating respectively. The PIF is looking to extend credit facilities and raise public debt to fund its ambitious spending and investment commitments at home and abroad, according to the Financial Times. As the key policy-driven economic agent of Saudi Arabia, Fitch does not expect changes to PIF status, ownership, and control over the medium term, which is an interesting thing for them to have to say. Um, that's uh, good for the PIF. Very interesting. Well, as you say, it, 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 PIF is sort of the linchpin of so many things that are trying to be accomplished with Vision 2030. Uh, you know, external investment, internal investment, uh, you know, the, the vehicle to... to bring uh, public companies into um, into a private sector or, or to list them on, on the Tadawal. So yeah, it's good to know they're financially sound. And number five, Saudi Arabia's Ministry of Human Resources and Social Development has approved the introduction of work from home in the government sector. The ministry's approval of telework as a new method of work in the government sector is part of achieving diversification and ensuring continuity of jobs in various work environments. Um, I thought this was this was interesting, especially in conjunction in the uh, our daily review today, Saudi Australia Group daily review. One of the one of the topics we cited was a was a grievance from five women about arbitrary dismissal and and you know between telework and and, and aggrieved employees, Saudi Arabia is getting oh so modern. <laughs> Paternity <laughs> leave is next, <laughs> Richard. We were ahead of the curve on this, so. <laughs> Um, number six, uh, and we'll wrap it up with this. The Richard Mill, is it Mill or Richard Milley? Um, uh, well, well we, we, yeah. that just shows how, little I, we I, know I'm about so glad I love it when you get these, <laughs> <laughs> that just shows how unfamiliar we are with the world of polo, but the Richard Mill, and I may correct that Al Ola desert polo 2022 is set to become the first modern polo tournament in the world to be staged in the desert, taking place on February 11th through 12th. It's organized by the Royal Commission for Al Ola in partnership with the Saudi Polo Federation and Richard Mill. The event marks the second season of the two-day tournament, first introduced by the RCU in 2020. Um, 
the photos of this event look incredible. It's a huge polo field right next to Elephant Rock and Al Ola. It really is an image of how Saudi Arabia has completely changed, and yet, in some ways, they're playing it just on has grass. Not. I haven't seen this. Are they playing, playing they, sand? They play, they're playing on sand. Sand, yeah. yeah. Which has got to trend. You got to change the game. I was going to say that must change the game a lot. Yeah, interesting. Well, but this is also we, uh, uh, David. We talk frequently about the concept of sports washing, and and we also uh, regularly make the point that so much of what Saudi Arabia does internationally in terms of purchasing, um, you know, uh, soccer teams, football teams, or or hosting, you know, controversial golf tournaments, or or this or that, has a corresponding use back home in terms of Vision 2030 and, and quality of life and, and, and athletic participation. So, you know, in See, terms of I soccer. Would argue, I would argue that um, <laughs> if you really think that the reason they're doing all of these rock concerts and magic shows uh, is to please Western audiences or to whitewash their society, you are naive and deceiving yourself. Mm -hmm. These are mostly done for their own domestic audience. They're done to give Saudis something to do, to give them a reason to be excited about the changes that are happening in their life and in their country. They're not done to make somebody write a nice editorial about them in the West. Uh, so I find, and I find it somewhat snide, if you will, and almost churlish to just say that every time they do something good, there's got to be some nefarious uh, motive behind it. So I think they're having a polo match because they like to play polo. I mean, you know, does they have polo matches in Abu Dhabi all the time? Are people saying they're doing that because they want to? What do you call it? Sports wash? <laughs> well, that's the common term, and that's the common criticism, and we we agree with you. Oh, well, we agree with you. Yeah, I think it's it's it is a it is a, a dismissive, uh, not fully informed, and, and it's people arrogant. It's just arrogant. Oh, you know, it's it's arrogant. And anyway, anyway, I think it's a good point. I will say that this polo match is 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 sort of a little. It's definitely not open for everyone. Saudi games approach. Um, uh, <laughs> You know, because I did, I looked, Richard Mill, Richard Mill, whatever it is, that's just a luxury watchmaker. And this is rarefied air. They have, they have a, a, a manual winding Bubba Watson model. And Bubba Watson just came runner up in the Saudi International. That'll cost you over 400000 And they've also recently unveiled a McLaren Speedtail for a cool 1.3 million. If you'd like to wear it, you know, that's what you want to wear on your wrist. But, yeah, this is this is interesting. It'll be beautiful, and the pictures were 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 really really attractive, as you said. Uh, but they're doing so much in Saudi Arabia, and I agree with you, David. People forget, you know, they always apply it here when they say all politics is local. I mean, people forget that for Saudis, you know, what you think, for the most part, in almost in almost every case, it really isn't on their list of priorities of concern. You know, they're thinking about other reasons to do things. Well, the Saudi government's first priority is its own people. Uh, they have a report, they have important relationships with foreign governments and they would like to maintain them. But, and I said this many times, you know, if they had to make a choice between what the Saudi people want and what Washington wants, they're going to go with the Saudi people.
and that and that that's that's it upsets some people that they that you know they that they don't bow to every women that and wish that the western media wishes to impose on them but uh, they have their own culture they have their own values uh, and they wish to protect them to some extent Mr. David Rundell is author of the book Vision or Mirage, Saudi Arabia at the Crossroads. Again, we cannot possibly emphasize the importance and significance of this book. It's really, really terrific. Get it. Go get it if you're listening to this. To the Richard Mill people, we will pronounce the name correctly in payment for watches. <laughs> David, thank you so much for joining us today. We really appreciate it. It was, it was fun. Well, I appreciate it. I don't know if you're going to want to have me back with my provocative remarks, but... Uh... If you do, I'm happy to chat with you. Well, David, book it. We want you back. Thank you so much for being with us today. <laughs> Take care. Bye-bye now.